starting this retreat, I made a resolution to do something I don't normally do at retreats like this, and that was to save my voice. Um, I didn't want to lose my voice. I was concerned about my voice. Jude, on the way, we driving down here, and Jude was like, yeah, Dad, you have a lot of preaching to do. <laughs> and um, I'm actually much more worried now about my hearing. So this is, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Um, this has been great. So uh, we're, we're having a great time. And uh, Fuji, watch for the comeback, y'all. It's going to be great. Okay. So open up your Bibles to... You guessed it, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, actually. We are not going sort of verse by verse through this book. It is a little too long, as much as I would like to do that. We are just hitting some highlights. What I explained this morning is that we, what we want to do this morning and tonight is take some of what we learned from last night from the first chapter and second chapter of Ecclesiastes and apply it into specific topics. And we could do this for all sorts of things. We did it this morning talking about social media. And tonight I want to take what we learned last night, the idea that God is a giver, that this life will be frustrating if we devote ourselves towards striving for our ambitions and our goals in this world. And instead, we need to remember that God is a giver and he's given us gifts to enjoy. We're going to take that and apply it tonight on the topic of friends. We'll talk about friends. And in order to do that best, I want to take you back to 1987. Most of you were not born. That's fine. But in 1987... A musician named Michael W. Smith released a song. All the parents are like, mm-hmm, I know, I know. Should we just sing the chorus right now? No. Um, I will, okay, so <laughs> I am not going to sing this for you because I love you. And I want you to come back tomorrow. Um, but the chorus goes like this. Friends are friends forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. And a friend will not say never. Because the welcome will not end. Though it's hard to let you go, in the Father's hands we know that a lifetime's not too long to live as friends. All the parents just wiping away a little tear right there. Now, as hard as it may be to believe, this song was quite popular. <laughs> um, it, it is even sappier than it sounds. I played it. I made my boys listen to it on the way down here. We listened to the whole thing, and I forgot that the whole thing is like electronic piano, electronic drums. It is, it is like 1987 to the max. It's great. This song was so popular, in fact, that when I was early in high school, the song was on, on the cassette tape in the family minivan. My mom was very moved by it, and she, my mom made me promise that I would play this song at her funeral. <laughs> so, I don't know how, this, this came to mind last summer. We were at the beach, family vacation, we're all together, we're under the tent. I said, Mom, do you remember this thing? Do you remember this Michael W. Smith song, Friends Are Friends Forever? And she's like, ah, I don't know. So I hummed it. She's like, oh yeah, I remember that. I said, Mom, do you remember? Do you remember asking me to promise you okay there you dropping everything okay all right you good okay so i asked my mom i said mom do you remember making me promise that i would play this song at your funeral 
And I was like, mom, that, that's kind of, it's a big thing on me. Like your funeral, I, you're my mom. I don't want to think about that. But I made this promise. And my mom just looks horrified. And she says, if you play that song at my funeral, I'm going to reach out from the grave and wring your neck. <laughs> so you may need to know my mom for that to make sense. <laughs> and maybe you've never asked anyone. Maybe, maybe that's never happened to you. Maybe you've never been asked. Maybe you've never asked anybody to commit to play a song at your funeral. But I don't think that I'm going very far out on a limb to say, look, friends are really important to all of us. Now that song, <laughs> cheesy as it was, and as ill-advised as that that commitment my mom asked for was, it said something about her value of, for friends. And I know that every one of you values friends as well. But friendship is not an easy topic. For some, there can be a lot of emotion wrapped up in the topic of friends. Time with friends can be some of the happiest moments of our lives. And I know that for some of you, you are here with your friends. Some of you have friends in this room that you were in children's ministry with from like day one. And that's a gift. And that's amazing. And there's ways I envy you for that. I don't have that. Uh, thinking about friendships for others, this could be more difficult. And uh, this can be emotional enough, significant enough, in fact, that just a short while ago, the Holy Spirit prompted Walt Alexander to, to give a prophecy to some or some of you uh, for whom this is a thing. How much does the Lord love us, right? To do that right before this. It's wonderful. But thinking about friendships, for some of you, can tempt us to anxiety or to worry. Some of you maybe have already, maybe you've already been disappointed by friends. Frustrated, maybe, at the difficulty in making and keeping lasting friendships. Some of us just might think about friendships in ways that are sentimental or selfish. So, look, for some of us, this is a real live issue and a hot topic, okay? And I hope this serves you. For others of you, I, I get it. Like, you got, man, you got great friends. And you're like, I don't know, what's the big deal? Here's what I hope, like the message this morning and, the, and this message tonight on friends, what, what we, the reason we have preaching at, a, at an event like this, like Sunday mornings, so much of what happens is we're stocking the shelves. Okay, so if this isn't like the thing for you right now, there's going to be a point where it will be. And so what I hope that we're doing here is preparing you. We're, 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 you, need to, you need to have stuff on the shelves that you can come back. You can open the pantry of your spiritual life and say, oh man, trouble with friends. Gosh, there was that verse. I don't care if you remember this message, but I hope you remember it. Man, there's these verses in Ecclesiastes that can serve me. Everybody wants a friend. And this is a good thing because God has made us like himself. God has made us to be relational beings. Not everyone who wants a friend has one. Not everyone knows how to be a friend. It's one of those areas in life, and there are many, that if we do what comes naturally, it might not work out right. Not everyone knows what they need a friend to be like. Many of us know, I mean, I want a friend, I, we value friendships, but what kind of friend do you need? Friendships have the potential to give great joy or great pain. But what do you look for in a friend? How do you know if you've got the right kind of friend? More importantly, maybe, how do you know if you are the right kind of friend? So these are some questions I hope we're going to be able to think through tonight in the book of Ecclesiastes. 
If King Solomon, the preacher, were here, I think we know by now what he would say about friendships. Vanity of vanities. Striving after the wind. Toil. And he would say, gift from God. Enjoy. So here in God's word, in the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon comes up to every one of us and he says, all right, let's talk about friendship. He's going to sit down with us a cup of coffee or whatever it is you like to drink and he's gonna say look let's let's talk about friendship let's talk about something that's on your heart let's talk about something that's important to every one of us so chapter 4 I'm gonna read verses 7 through 12 actually why don't we start with just verses 7 and 8 and then I'll come and read the, the rest of it after that um, let me pray I'm gonna do it a little different I'm gonna pray this time and then we're gonna read this in in chunks as we go through so <clears throat> father in heaven you have given us many gifts. We have experienced many gifts today. We've experienced laughter and competition. We've experienced food, a beautiful day, a great setting. We have experienced wonderful singing to you and the gift of your word to us in many different forms. And Father, we pray again that you would visit us, that you would come by the power of your spirit, give us conviction, give us fortitude, give us wisdom to know how to live well the area of friendship. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's just read the first two verses. And then we will, come, we, we will press on from there to read 9 through 12 when we get to that. So, Ecclesiastes verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Solomon says, Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So, I think, if we could sum it up, Solomon is concerned here that we not set our hearts on a selfish pursuit of friendship. And so if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you your first point here. And it's worded rather strongly because I think we need to sort of capture what Solomon thinks. Selfish friendship is stupid. <laughs> we might as well just say it, I think, the way Solomon would say it if he were sitting here. Selfish friendship is stupid. So these verses begin, Solomon sees another vanity under the sun. And he is just adding to the catalog of things in this world that will frustrate us. If we go about them the wrong way, another morning mist, another attempt to bundle up the breeze and take it with us. Something for us that is impossible beyond our ability to comprehend or to, con to control. And so here, Solomon, he's thinking about a guy who is working his tail off. But what he does, he does only for himself. You see what it says here? There is no end to all his toil. Now, it may be that in these verses, what Solomon is thinking of, it's possible that he's thinking of a guy who is working, like at work, trying to make money and to accumulate possessions and riches and that sort of thing. But given where these verses come with the verses right after it that are clearly focused on friendship and relationship, I think it's possible he's thinking about somebody who's toiling hard, who's working to accumulate friendships. He says there is no end to all his toil. When it comes to friendship, some people will do almost anything to make and to keep friends. Almost anything to please others so they don't lose those friends. 
It says his eyes are never satisfied with riches. For some people, the friendships they have are never enough. The experience with that friend or the number of friends they have, it's never enough. They're always desiring more. And then most importantly for us tonight, he never asks, for whom am I toiling? This question right here is really at the core of what we're trying to get at. This guy that Solomon is thinking of, why does he never ask this question? Why does he never ask, for whom am I toiling? It's too easy to be thoughtless about this. So I'm saying again right now what I've said in previous messages. God has called us to be deliberate and intentional and thoughtful about everything we do, including how we think about our friendships. Everybody wants friends. Of course we should have friends. But we assume all kinds of things about our relationships with others that just may not be true. And the biggest problem is we never stop to ask ourselves, for whom am I toiling? What do I think about this friendship? Why do I do the things that I do? Does the way that I think about friendship line up with God's word? And so we can ask ourselves, we could put it another way, who is this friendship for? When he asks that question, for whom am I toiling? If we take that question and overlay it onto friendship, we might ask, who is this friendship for? And not just friendship in general, but specific friends. Think about your friends, the people, the relationships that you value most in life. Who is that relationship for? Who is that friendship for? Is it for you? Or is it to serve someone else? I think that's where these verses push us. They push us to ask that question, for whom are you toiling? Who is your friendship for? And maybe this is a new idea for you. Maybe you've never thought about, is your desire for friendship about what you can get out of it, or is it about how you can serve others? Now, I, you, maybe you've had that thought like in general, sort of generically. You've heard a message on serving. You've heard a message on, on the church and fellowship and how this is supposed to work. Yeah, sure. I mean, of course, I'm you know, saved to serve and all that sort of thing. That's great. Sign me up. Sounds like what good Christians do. But think about it in the actual details of a specific friendship that you have. Who is it for? Is it for you or is it for that other person? Maybe you're not sure. You think, how would I know that? It's a good question. Glad you asked. Okay, well, selfish friendship first shows up in how we think about friends. Okay, so take a moment. Here's an exercise we can do. Imagine the ideal friend. Again, not just generically. I mean, your ideal friend. That might be an actual person, or you might, it might be some sort of composite. Sort of the jokes that this friend tells, the questions this friend asks, the, the fun, you know, zaniness of this friend, the steadfastness of this other friend. Man, if you could mash all that together, wow, what a friend that would be. So imagine that perfect friend for yourself, okay? And imagine then, what would you do with this ideal friend? Imagine in this picture, what, if it would be just the, the perfect setting with this ideal friend, where are you? What are you doing? What are you talking about? What would make you happy in that moment? Where, where would you find contentment and joy in that experience with that friend? Is it in someone who is attentive to you? Someone who makes you laugh? Someone who uh, you make good memories together? Or in that moment, is that ideal friendship, if you're honest, is, that, is it really about what you could offer and how you could serve that friend? I wish I could say that my ideal friendship was always oh man i'm just just hey laying down my life just here to serve 
I'm prone to selfish thoughts. And there's people that I relate to more easily and people that I have to work to serve. And so we need to be attentive and think, well, okay, where and how am I being selfish in my friendship? Selfish, friends, selfish friendship also shows up in how we talk to friends. This might be the best barometer of the selfishness ometer in your heart when it comes to friendships. A surefire way to detect selfish friendship is to measure the percentage of time that you spend talking about yourself. Do you interrupt? Do you steer conversations back to yourself? Do you try to one-up your friend's stories? Oh yeah, wait till you hear about the time I... <laughs> I'm a pro, I am sorry to say, at this. This was the kicker. This was, this was the thing that helped me to realize I am really selfish in my approach to friendships. And in fact, I discovered this quite painfully and not on my own. My wife, Nicole, and I were on about maybe our third or fourth date. This is a very vivid memory. And we were at this great Italian restaurant in Alexandria, Virginia. I was trying to impress her. So, you know, expensive meal, like Italian. It's like, it's, it's good, good food, good times. And we're just, we're talking. I'm, you know, this is like, like our third date. I'm like, I'm hoping this is going place. I'm trying to impress her. And at one point in the meal, she leaned back in her chair. You would have to know Nicole to see this happening, but she just leaned back in her chair and she said, you know, I've noticed that you talk about yourself a lot and you don't listen very well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought too. Like, like, spaghetti's like falling out of my mouth. Wow. Um, and my first thought was, I don't, I don't know, I don't even know what to say to that. Like, okay, um, well, help me learn, I guess. Um, what, do, what do you mean? And so she started giving me examples, and um, I, after I finally got that bite of tortellini down. Uh, at first, I didn't believe her, honestly. I, I, I was like, are you sure? Like, I, I think I'm better at it than that. And so she was like, okay, well, let's just see. And um, so we would, from there, you know, we're, we would go, like, hang out with people, go to dinner with somebody. And afterwards, we're, we're driving back, driving home. And she would, she would just point out, hey, um, okay, so did you notice that when they were telling that vacation story, you came in with your vacation story? Did you notice how often you interrupted him to talk about the things that really are interesting to you? And it, it just started to blow my mind. I began to see more and more how often I made it about me. It's really humbling to admit. And I wish I could say that after, that was 20 years ago, I wish I could say that, okay, I've, I got this down now. I've mastered it. Um, I still have to pay attention to my words because that impulse, that sinful selfishness is still in me. So what about you? Do you listen well? Do you ask questions do you ask questions? Do you ask follow-up questions? That's actually the secret sauce. The art of conversation is knowing how to take an interest in somebody, a deep enough interest to ask them an intelligent follow-up question to learn more about the thing that they're talking about. Thoughtful follow-up question communicates to somebody, I care about you, and I care about what you care about. And that's a way for me to say, look, you matter to me. It's not easy. And fellas, for us guys, look, let's be honest, all right? This is, this is harder for us than it is for the ladies. It's something we need to work at. 
Um, I mentioned earlier today, as I work with singles and I've, I've been on campuses and interacted with people, it amazes me how, how few people actually are good at conversation anymore. And social media is a part of that. I think the isolation that just being on our phones brings is a part of that. And I think one of the ways that we can be salt and light in the world is by caring for people enough to look them in the eye, listen to them well, ask them questions, and love them in that moment by taking an interest in them. That's what the gospel does in us. It transforms us so that we're different in how we converse. So selfish friendship shows up in how we talk to friends. It also shows up in what we do with friends. What do you actually do with the time that you have together? Is it about what you like to do? Now, maybe your friendship is on a common interest, and so it's something you like to do and your friend likes to do. But are you ever willing to do things that are less appealing to you to serve others? Are your friendships oriented outwards? Here's another way to think about this. Are your friendships oriented outwards to others to include them? Think especially at the age that you're in. Man, you get a friend and it's like lockdown mode. We got, it's us. Hey, look, we got, I got my bud and it's us. And nope, you guys, hey, not cool. You're not buttoning in on this because this, the chemistry here, just right. And okay, now there's three of us. Okay, it's fine. We can, I can live with three, but no more because three friends, I like, I don't want this to be like a mob. And true friendship, unselfish friendship is always like, who can we get? Who can we gather? Who can we bring in? Let's add to this. Let's bring other people into the goodness we have here because God is a giver and we want to be like him and share this gift with others. So living for yourself, living for what you can get out of friendship is, look, it's a, it's a profound way to waste your life. So much so that Solomon calls it an unhappy business. Those are strong words. But friendship doesn't have to be an unhappy business. There is a way for friendship to work differently. And Solomon, the preacher, he goes on to explain that in verses 9 through 12. So I want to read 9 through 12, talk about a different kind of friendship. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So if you're taking notes, we said first, look, selfish friendship is stupid. You can write that like with two O's. It's stupid. That's how stupid it is. Secondly, though, what we see here is that living as a true friend is wise. True friendship, being a true friend and finding true friends is wise. True friendship is wise. So here's the contrast to selfish friendship. True friendship serves others, looks out for others, focuses on others. That's what it means when it says two are better than one. So there's a couple things we can learn here. First, God made us to need others and to experience community. We need relationships outside of ourselves. Now, there may be a few of you, it's possible there's a couple of you who think, you know, friendships, not that important to me. Kind of like the loner mystique. You know, I got this, I, just me, I'm good. I think, no, two are better than one. God designed us to be a part of a community because he designed us to be like himself. We are made in God's image and God is not a loner. 
God has existed from all eternity as a trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit relating to one another in perfect love and harmony. That's a great mystery that I can't totally explain. But he made us to be like him in that. And these relationships we have are a picture of the relationship God has with the members of the Trinity. Two are better than one. This actually echoes the way God created mankind, men and women. It is not good for man to be alone, it says in Genesis 2. So he gave the gift of marriage. Two are better than one. So he gave the gift of friendship. God created us to be part of different kinds of communities. Marriage, friendship, family, church. But we need to understand the nature of those communities. The ways some of those are different. There are obviously ways that marriage is different from friendship. Ways that friendship is different from relationships with everybody in the church. Ways that our commitment to one another in the church is even different than what we experience here God created us to be a part of those communities. He says that two are better than one, not 22 are better than one. So accumulating a vast number of very shallow relationships, that is not success in friendship. It is better to have one or two or three rich and meaningful, lasting friendships than 22 shallow acquaintances. Better to have someone who knows you, who cares for you, who will walk with you. Now, lots of people want friendships like that, but maybe aren't doing the work to be that kind of friend. So what, what else can we learn here first? Okay, first, God made us to need others and for community. Second, true friendships work. You might listen to that sentence. True friendships work. Wait, does he mean like they do work or like they work out in the end? Like, well, yeah, it could go either way. It says that they have a good reward for their toil. And I think this is actually the most overlooked phrase in this section. Friendships take toil. Friendship is effort and work if you're doing it right. It, you, you can't be a friend, uh, to take what we talked about this morning, you can't, you can't be like tubing, just tubing through friendship, just floating along in your giant donut, you know, drifting. It takes effort. And it takes, it takes work, the kind of conversation I was describing earlier, to listen well, to ask questions, to pay attention, to not be having this sort of internal monologue, just, just waiting to, I, I want to say the things I'm going to say. Um, that takes effort. It takes, it takes work to remember your friend's needs and to pray for them. When I wake up in the morning and I read my Bible and pray. I have a little spot in my journal. I, I, I write down things going on, things that I'm thinking about, verses, quotes that are meaningful. And then I have a spot each day I write down. I write down, I just, I put a little P and then I write down, okay, here's things I'm praying for today. And that always starts really blank. I'm like, man, what do I need to pray for today? I don't know, Lord, pray for, pray for my wife and kids. Pray for my friends. Lord, bless them. Like, Lord, help me remember what's going on. And then the Lord answers that. The Lord loves to answer that prayer, asking for help to remember to pray for others. And then once, like, it's, I'll start, I write, okay, oh, yeah, yeah. All right, I have a buddy with a job interview. Somebody's struggling with a health thing. We're praying for somebody's kid who's sick. Um, I start writing those things down. And then it's like, once that faucet opens, it's hard to stop. But it takes work to remember 
to stir that up. It takes work to remember. Lord, please help her with that job interview today. It takes work to see a friend and to remember that you've been praying and to express that care and to say, hey, is your grandmother out of the hospital? How's she doing? That takes effort. As a man, I'm actually quite familiar with the very laziest form of friendship possible, the laziest form of communication possible, sitting on a couch watching a game with my, my friends. And it's amazing how little effort we can put into relationship in that moment. Killer play, long touchdown pass, massive home run. Just sitting there like, dude. Like, mmm. <laughs> it's, it's like it takes nothing to be that kind of friend. It is not work at all. If that's all you've got, that is not much of a friendship. And so we need to ask, what is our friendship about? What is it focused on? We can't have, we really have to dig into this and think, what, what is this for? What is this about? What is, what is the basis of our friendship? What is the common ground that we're building upon? We can't have friendship just for the sake of friendship. And I want to I quote somebody, maybe you've heard of him, named C.S. Lewis. He actually had a lot to say about friendship in a book called The Four Loves. And these are kind of strong words. He says, he's talking about not having friendship just for the sake of friendship. He said, that is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. Woo. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. There would be nothing for friendship to be about, and friendship must be about something, even if it were only an enthusiasm for dominoes or white mice. I don't know what that means exactly, but <laughs> fill in like something else. I don't know, PlayStation or whatever it is you're into. Those who have nothing can share nothing those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. I'm going to say that again. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Listen, if you want to be a Christian friend, first, you have something and you are going somewhere. So you fundamentally have a foundation to build a friendship on. You have something. You have Christ. You have his word. You have his church. And you are working together. With this friend, you have a foundation to build on, even if you have nothing else in common. And you are going somewhere. If you are a Christian, you are headed in a direction. There is heaven in front of us. And there is all the work that God has given us to do to get there. So you have a basis and a foundation. And one of the things that I love about the church is that people who first would never have found their way to one another and certainly would never have thought to be friends apart from this end up becoming friends. I was talking earlier with one of the dads about uh, uh, somebody that we both know, a friend of mine named Seta Sakaguchi. Now he lives in Japan. Seta was a foreign exchange student at George Mason University. When I met him, we were both college students at the time, and we struck up a friendship. Well, it turns out that our grandfathers were on opposing sides in World War II. <laughs> My grandfather was driving a submarine in the South Pacific, his grandfather was in the Japanese army. If they had the chance, they would have killed each other. And here we are, 60 years later, friends. That would never happen apart from the gospel. And we had other things in common, but most of all we had in common, that we had something and we're going somewhere. 
What do you have that is worth sharing? Now, we have Christ, you have other things, we have common interests, people like all sorts of things, and that's great. But friendship can be, it can be about many of the things that we're interested, but true friendship will never be about less than Jesus Christ. True Christian friendship is going to involve sharing Jesus Christ. So if Jesus doesn't come up in your conversations with your friends, I want to ask you, what kind of friendship do you have really? And young people in particular, I want to push you in this. I want to challenge you in this. To ask, how often does Jesus come up? How often do you ask about the Bible? What have you been reading lately? What do you think about that sermon we heard the other day? What are you getting out of this retreat? How is God speaking to you? How can I pray for you? What have you learned lately from the Bible that has surprised you or encouraged you? There's so many questions we can ask. It, it can be hard for young people to turn a corner on this because of what the Bible calls the fear of man. We're worried about what other people might think. Oh, they might think I'm like trying to be super spiritual or something. They might just think you're trying to be spiritual. <laughs> and that wouldn't be such a bad thing. It's only awkward if you make it awkward. So you can ask them. You can ask others. This, I, I, I want to say to you, it is not as weird as you're afraid it might be. Some of you are doing this already. Some of you are doing a great job at this. And if this comes easier to you, one of the ways you can serve others is by helping them. By taking somebody who is younger or less mature and saying, hey, let's start a conversation at lunch today about what we've been reading in our Bibles. Let's ask that guy how we can pray. Let's, let's go up to her and encourage her for the ways we've seen her servant. Be a wonderful thing to do. We can, we can stir one another up to this. We can bring one another along it's only awkward if you make it awkward. Let's look for ways to do this. Now, at some point in a message like this, people inevitably start thinking, what about friendships between guys and girls? Like, how does this work? How do we, how do we think about this? Good question. So glad you asked. <laughs> yeah, I knew it was coming. <laughs> Nervous laughter. Mm, what's he going to say? Mm-hmm. But he's wondering. Okay. The question is, well, all right, high school, college, whatever, singles, can, can a man and a woman, can they just be friends? Is it possible? Well, sure. Well, of course it's possible. You don't have to be weird about that. You guys have, you, there's young men here that have friends that are women. There's young women here that have friends that are young men. That, that happens all the time. But it's good to keep in, in mind, we need to sprinkle that with a dose of wisdom and think about how, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about relationships between men and women? And in the Bible, male-female relationships work like this. There are, first of all, there are biological relationships, right? So um, I've got a mother and I've got sisters and I've got daughters. There are married relationships. I have a wife. Now, as far as the Bible's concerned, there's my wife, my mom, my sisters, and my daughters, and there's everybody else. And that helps me think wisely about how to treat any of the women that are in my life that are not my wife, 
my mom, my sisters, and my daughters. There are displays of affection that I show to my wife or to my, my, my mom, my sisters, my daughters that would be very different than the way I would greet others of you here. You may, maybe you've noticed I've shaken a lot of hands. I'm not a big hugger, um, which is weird because I'm from the South and you would think that's normal, but that's, that's just a simple way for me to say, you know what, I'm going to treat everybody the same. I'm going to be careful and wise about this. If you're a big hugger, it's okay. I mean, there is Christian freedom to do that, and there is wisdom in that. Um, you can walk in wisdom in that. But we need to think carefully then about how, what, what is it the Bible calls us to in these relationships. And that observation is worth dwelling on because I have a wife, with one category. I have mothers, sisters, daughters, and then I have everybody else. If you are a teenager, you are technically single, right? Not technically, you just are single. <laughs> and so there's a trajectory. Right now you have maybe mother, maybe sisters. You don't have daughters yet because you don't have a wife. But okay, there's everybody else, <laughs> right? I, I'm really sharp on this stuff. I've really studied hard. I put in the time. Um, and you got to think, well, there's a trajectory ahead of me. There is one woman out there or there is one man out there. And you may know him or her, but you probably don't know who he or she may be. And so we need to think wisely about how do we reserve and protect the affections that are in our heart for that one woman. I discovered early on that in one of the qualifications, the list of qualifications for pastors in, in 1 Timothy 3 uses this description. It's called to be a one-woman man. And Paul actually takes the, those three words in, in, in the original language, in Greek, he takes the three words, one, woman, and man, and he just mashes them all together and invents a new word, which I think is the coolest thing. And I think that's the kind of mentality that we're called to. And so even if you don't have a wife yet, if you don't have a husband yet, fellas, you're thinking, look, I'm a one-woman man. And so the way I treat young women is going to be, well, I'm a one-woman man. I just don't know who she is yet. And I guess you can flip it. And you could, ladies, you could say, I am a, I have to say this carefully because it, uh, it doesn't come naturally to me. I'm a one-man woman. Yeah, that would be it. <laughs> but you get what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I didn't practice that part. Um, and so this is what it says too in 1 Timothy 5, verse 2. It says, treat younger women as sisters in absolute purity. Absolute purity. What a great phrase. That leaves a lot of room. There is a lot of space. In absolute purity, there is a lot of space for very appropriate friendship between young men and young women. There is a lot of space to have a conversation, to actually care for one another, to express Christian love as brothers and sisters in very appropriate ways. But absolute purity has boundaries and limits. And that's another talk for another day to walk through all the details of that. If you're not sure, Mike will do a great job fielding those questions anytime. <laughs> so can young men and young women be friends? Of course they can, especially when they are committed to absolute purity. Now, back to Ecclesiastes 4. God has made us to need others. Friendships require work. And the last couple verses here explain why these friendships are worth the work. I'm going to kind of rattle through these verses kind of quickly. First, God uses friendship to give help. Look at verses 9 and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. A true friend 
helps his friend if he falls. Now, I don't think he's talking here about like if you trip. <laughs> just, you just stumbled. Now you're down on the ground, you know, hand up. Um, in the ancient world at this time, uh, they didn't have running water. And so they didn't have a way to water. It was hard to maintain water. So people would dig these big holes in the ground. They were called cisterns. Some were really big. And the walls were just dirt. And if you fell into one, you're basically like sinking in mud. And if you fall, what do you do? There's no way to climb out of this thing. That's the kind of picture that's in view. So friends, a true friend helps his friend out of danger and keeps his friend away from danger. Now, we're not likely to fall into a pit, a true literal pit, although there are cliffs over here that do seem dangerous. But there are spiritual dangers all around us. And a true friend is willing to help a friend out of danger and keep a friend from danger by speaking up about the spiritual dangers that are around. And that might mean having the courage and the backbone and the actual love for one another to say something about something you see, something you wonder about. It, you see the way a friend is treating a member of the opposite sex or disrespectful to their parents or gossiping or slandering or any number of sins, a, a true friend will speak up to that. Verse 11 says that true friendship also provides us with comfort. Again, if two lie together, they can keep warm, but how will one keep warm alone? This is probably the weirdest part of this section. So it helps, again, go back 3,000 years ago. A lot of these people were shepherds, which meant they spent a lot of time out of doors. Or if they were traveling, they were on open roads. There was no holiday inn to stop in. And they, uh, if you got stuck, caught out in the open country at night and the dew starts falling, it's going to be a cold, miserable night. But if somebody comes along that has a cloak, they're like, hey, here's a spot under the tree. Let's spread this out. We can both keep warm. That's a gift. No, we aren't shepherds. We don't sleep in open fields. We don't need to share a cloak to keep warm at night. I'm grateful to God for that. But there are many other ways that true friendships can provide comfort for one another. And so we provide comfort for one another through the kind of care and praying for one another. I mentioned a few minutes ago, we provide comfort for one another through encouragement. This is one of the, the most selfless ways to be a friend. The, the most caring and loving ways to be a friend is to see somebody doing something right, seeing, something, see, seeing somebody doing something well, glorifying God, growing in their relationship with God, growing in the way they're using their gifts, serving in the church, and then to say something about that. It is unspeakably encouraging to have somebody say, I noticed that God is at work in you. And so we can comfort our friends with that. The true friends also provide safety. Look at verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So again, if you're a traveler in the ancient world, you're just walking down a dusty road by yourself. There are no airbags. There is no security system in your car. There is no 911. If you get jumped by a bandit, you are in trouble. And you are likely to lose your money and maybe your life. Two are better than one because you have somebody to defend you. Somebody to fight for you. True friendship is loyal. This comes out in the words that we speak and in the actions that we do. So we think carefully. True friends think carefully about categories like gossip and slander. How do I speak about my friends when they're not, they're not there? 
Somebody is making fun of somebody who is my friend. Will I stand up for them? True friends are loyal in those ways. Now, I think the emphasis here, though, is primarily not on what friends can do for us, but what kind of friend we are called to be to others. And this is something, true friendship is something you do to yourself. Some of you might be thinking, hey, that sounds great, but no one ever reaches out to me. Man, that sounds amazing. I'd like to have a friend like that. I, where are they? Why aren't they, don't, why don't they see what I'm longing for a friend like that and come running? Well, for, true friendship is something that we do to ourselves. We begin by saying, how can I be that kind of friend to others? It's going to start with the people God has given you for life. The best friends in life will be those God has given you for life. You're always going to have parents. You're always going to have siblings. So the best friends that God has given you will be those you're going to have for life. I graduated from high school in 1995. I have a yearbook for some of you who are homeschooled. This is a big fat book with all our pictures in it. And at the end of the year, you pass these things around and everybody signs them with all kinds of really sappy and emotional things like friends forever, never change. Let's keep in touch. Have a great summer. 1995. I don't know, well, that was a lot of years ago. 24 years it is. You know how many of those people I'm still in touch with today? really sad. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> I've moved around a lot. A lot of things have happened. But we didn't stay friends forever. I don't know. Michael W. Smith was wrong about this one. But the Lord wasn't the Lord of us then. So maybe it would be different if I had been following the Lord at the time. But parents, siblings, cousins, then friends in the church, now is the time to be growing your friendship with your parents and with your siblings. And then finally, I think it helps us to remember, if we're going to do this well and right, it helps us to remember that all human friendship is modeled on the kind of friendship that we see in Jesus. Maybe you're wondering, we're talking about Ecclesiastes, we're talking about friends, how are you going to get to Jesus? Well, here's how. Jesus says in John 15, 12 through 15, I'm just going to read it, you don't have to turn there. John 15, 12 through 15, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my, my, excuse me, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls all those who follow him his friends. He commands us to be a certain kind of friend, to love and to lay down our lives but he makes that possible by being our friend. That is mind-blowing. We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. We deserve all of the, the, the sort of pictures that are in the book of Revelation, this rider on a white horse coming with a sword for vengeance and death. And here Jesus comes alongside us and says, friend. And he did exactly this. He laid down his life for his friends. And so if you have Jesus as a friend. If you are a follower of Christ, he did this for you. He did the ultimate friendship in serving you and dying for you. And it serves us then as we go out from that to think, well, okay, if Jesus loves us that much, then he has put these friends at this time in my life. So one last quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, we might mistakenly think that we have chosen one another, that we have ascended above the rest of mankind by our native powers. 
But for a Christian, there are, strictly speaking, no chances. You don't just happen to make friends at this, this retreat. A secret master of the ceremonies has been at work. Christ can truly say to every group of Christian friends, you have not chosen one another, but I have chosen you for one another. The friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the others. As we go out from here, let's look for good friendships, but let's be good friends. Let's be friends the way Christ was a friend, laying down our lives and serving others so that God might reveal to each the beauties of all the others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word and thank you for the gift of friendship. It is one of the most wonderful human gifts that we experience in this life. And for that, we give you thanks. Thank you for the gifts of friendship. I pray for these young people. Father, I pray that you would give them friendships that would satisfy their hearts, that would be a great joy to them. But even more than that, I pray that you would put it in their hearts to be good friends. Help them to see. Give them the wisdom to know how to be friends, how to serve others, how to lay down their lives, how to be an encouragement and a comfort and a support and a help and a defense to their friends. And I pray all this in the name of our great friend, Jesus, whom we love with all our hearts. Amen.